Uh, good morning to you. If we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Mulloyan, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here uh, of Liberty Church. And uh, it's my joy to open God's Word for us this morning. We're going to be continuing on in our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that uh, Annie referenced a little while ago, page uh, 956 uh, is where that will be. Now, if you've been with us in the series um, following along, you'll notice that we skipped over chapter 7. And it wasn't just like some glaring mistake that we just made. Uh, next week, actually, Pastor Steve Huber from Liberty Church East in Philadelphia will be here with us. Uh, and he's going to talk through and, and teach on 1 Corinthians 7. So uh, bear with us as we're kind of going a little bit out of order, but we'll be in 1 Corinthians 8 and, and 9 uh, today. There's a certain episode of the TV show Parks and Recreation. Anybody familiar with that show? A lot of people. A uh, certain episode of Parks and Rec where a fictitious country singer makes an appearance. His name is Chip McCap. And the whole purpose of this character's appearance on the show is really to mock the degeneration of country music. I know we're in Pennsylvania, so maybe you don't listen to a ton of country music. But I also know that we're in central Pennsylvania, so that maybe you do. Uh, Shay and I moved here just about five years ago. We're still amazed by the blend that central Pennsylvania is between the northeast and the midwest and even a little bit of the south and the Bible Belt kind of all smashed together uh, in one spot. Whether you uh, listen to country music or not, it's really not too difficult to figure out the, the formula to country songs. Um, every hit country song consists of the same ingredients. There's a country girl or boy, depending on who the artist is. There's a truck. There's ice-cold beer, and it had better be ice-cold. And there's freedom. These are the key ingredients of a country song. And so there's this scene in this episode where the main characters are visiting Chip McCap in his studio, and he's working on a new song and basically just playing around with the different ingredients and different combinations. So the line he comes up with is, I'll bring the girls, you bring the beer, and the troops will bring the freedom. <laughs> and it's a sadly accurate depiction of the state of, of country music today. Uh, but as we lament that, think about the, the freedom piece in particular of that. Uh, because I think there's something in this that, that, something that, that highlights something important about, about us and how we think about freedom. And that is that it's possible for you and me to misunderstand and be manipulated by the notion of freedom. As a society, we, we tend to and we, we can view freedom as this sort of unqualified good. And people and crowds will applaud at the mention of the word. And it's not just the recipe for a hit country song. It's also the way that politicians rally their supporters, regardless of what political party or affiliation they're in. If you're on the left, you might rally behind the freedom of choice when it comes to unborn life. If you're on the right, you might rally behind the freedom to carry guns. And no doubt, then you will disagree with some of the freedoms that the other side affirms or proposes. Deep down, we know that freedom is not an unqualified good. Deep down, each of us believes that there are some freedoms that people should not have. And perhaps we've even, in thinking about this some, begun to see that there's an inherent danger that lurks underneath this otherwise popular idea of freedom. And namely, it is that we can become so fixated on our personal freedoms that we actually become enslaved to them. 
David Brooks, uh, who is a writer for the New York Times, he uh, reflected on how this has played itself out in the United States history over the past several decades. And he said this, Many of the people who led the social and political movements of the 60s and the 80s, I guess he skipped over the 70s there for some reason, um, naively assumed that once old restrictions were removed and individuals were liberated, better ways of living would automatically appear. But in life, things are not that easy. If we start upending obsolete social norms, pretty soon we will notice that valuable ones, like civility and manners, get weakened too. By dissolving social ties in order to unleash individual self-expression, valuable community bonds are eroded as well. And if the 60s and 80s were about expanding freedom and individualism, we are now left to cope with excessive freedom and excessive individualism. In other words, what he's saying there is that it's possible to put such a high value on expressing ourselves however we may choose that it will hinder us from being able to be a meaningful part of a collaborative communal society. Which means that in the pursuit of personal freedoms, we've just stumbled into a different form of slavery. Okay, and apart from maybe all the socio, socio-political aspects of this, this same line of thinking is evident and seeps its way into the church, both in our day and 2,000 years ago in the first century in the city of Corinth. And so it's important, it's critical really for us to think more deeply about freedom. Not just as this unqualified good, and not merely through the lens of personal preference and individual rights. And we're going to attempt to at least do some of that as we look today at 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter 8, and then the first 18 verses of chapter 9. You can follow along with me as I read. But listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 
Are, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of, the fr- any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Everlasting God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So give us purity of heart and strength of purpose, that no selfish passion may hinder us from knowing your will, that no weakness may keep us from doing it, that in your light we may see light, and in your service find perfect freedom. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So three questions uh, that we will ask and attempt to answer today. The first one, what is gospel freedom? The second one, what is gospel freedom for? And the last one, what does gospel freedom look like? So first, what is gospel freedom? Among a, a number of problems plaguing the church in Corinth is a misunderstanding of gospel freedom. And so twice in this letter, Paul quotes this phrase that was apparently common among the Corinthian Christians of the day. And the phrase is this, all things are lawful for me. It shows up first uh, back in chapter 6 in reference to sexuality. It shows up again in chapter 10 in reference to matters of eating and drinking. And there's a lot of truth in that phrase. It is, all things are lawful for me. It really gets at the core of the message of the gospel. Namely, that salvation doesn't come through rule-keeping and lists of do's and don'ts. Salvation is not through our works, right? Salvation is only and always by God's grace alone through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And what that means 
is that Jesus purchases our freedom from the laws, from the rules, from the lists of do's and don'ts that could never have saved us. He fulfills God's law to the point that though the moral aspects of that law are still in place, we now have freedom to enjoy what God has made without looking to rule-keeping as the basis for our salvation, as the basis for our standing with God. Food is really at the center here of what Paul is writing about in these chapters, and specifically uh, meat that has been sacrificed to idols. A little bit of the background on that. Uh, Before Jesus fulfilled certain ceremonial laws that God had given to Moses, God's people had strict dietary restrictions. No shellfish, no pork, uh, and certainly meat that was used in a worship service for a pagan idol would have been off-limits. But in fulfilling the law, we read both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, Jesus declares all foods clean. Which means that every time you and I eat bacon, or you and I eat shrimp, or even better, bacon-wrapped shrimp, (laughs) that is us enjoying a freedom of the gospel. It's why it's not only completely appropriate, but theologically accurate to say amen, hallelujah, when you eat delicious foods like that. In the church in Corinth, you have the same two groups that we have in the church today. There's the progressive, permissive crowd, and there's the conservative, restrictive crowd. And each one of us individually is actually a composite of both of these kind of sketches, but you probably already know yourself which side you more heavily lean to, because we all lean more heavily to one side or the other. And just like today, both of these groups are in danger of missing what gospel freedom really is. The conservative, restrictive-leaning folks, they're in danger of making salvation about works and rule-keeping. So it's offensive that we cannot earn any part of our salvation. We like rules, and we like lists, and we like doing things that we can point to and say, this is why God should love me. This is why God should accept me. This is why God should have favor upon me. And because of that, there have been, there always have been, there always will be people in the church who insist on a Jesus-plus rules approach. And that does great damage to the message of the gospel, actually to the point that it makes it no gospel at all. And Paul devotes a different letter, an entire letter, to this problem. It's in our Bibles. We know it as the book of Galatians. But here in the book of Corinthians, in a different letter, Paul isn't addressing the conservative, restrictive crowd. He's addressing the progressive, permissive folks. And what Paul does is he actually affirms a lot. He affirms they're perceiving some things really well. So chapter 8, verse 8, food is neutral. In light of the gospel, food neither commends you to God, right? it doesn't earn you favor with God, nor does food itself condemn you. So as Christians, you have freedom with what you eat or what you don't eat. So it's not that the progressive, permissive folks are completely wrong about gospel freedom. They're actually right to see this freedom that has been bought for them by Jesus. The problem is that they have a woefully incomplete view of that freedom. To the degree that their quote-unquote freedom is just becoming, or is at least at risk of becoming, another form of slavery, either for them or for others or for both. Gospel freedom is this. Gospel freedom is that Jesus sets us free from something and that Jesus sets us free for something. And so what these men and women in Corinth have seen rightly is that Jesus has set them free from 
having to earn their salvation, but they're missing what the freedom is for. So let's talk about that. That's the second question we want to ask today. What is gospel freedom for? When I uh, turned 16 and got my driver's license, my parents made sure to clarify for me that driving was a privilege and not a not something that I was entitled to. It's a privilege, not something I was entitled to. That was actually the opening line of a driving contract I had to sign before I was allowed to get my license. And when uh, people who don't have kids that are of driving age hear that I had to sign a driving contract, they're usually like, wow, that's a little intense. That's kind of crazy. When people who do have kids that age hear that, they say, wow, can I get a copy of that? <laughs> and yes, you can if you'd like a copy. We, I, I think I have it still somewhere in hiding in some papers. What's the difference between a privilege and an entitlement? A privilege is something that's been given to you. An entitlement is something that we think we inherently deserve. So it follows that if something is a privilege, it will come with some gratitude, it will come with some responsibility to use that privilege appropriately. If something is an entitlement, however, if, if in my own mind and heart I think I deserve it, then pity the one who tries to put any kind of limitation or restriction on that. As we've seen, gospel freedom is a privilege. Uh, just as you and I cannot earn our salvation, nor are we entitled to the benefits of that salvation on our own merit. Right? Freedom is given to us through the work of Christ. And because it's given to us in that way, it comes with responsibility. As entitled people, naturally entitled people, you and I like to ask the question, can I? In other words, is this something permissible? Am I allowed to do this thing? Because if I am allowed to do this thing, then I'm going to do it. And in matters like food, because of the freedom of the gospel, there are a lot of questions that we could, a lot of uh, topics or issues where we could answer yes to, that, to the can I question. But what Paul is saying here, and then what he demonstrates with his own life, is that a far better question than can I is should I? Should I? How do we know if we should do something? I think it starts by first recognizing and owning the responsibility of what gospel freedom is for. And in this text, Paul gives a couple important principles about God's purposes for freedom, which help us answer the should I question. What is gospel freedom for? For one, Gospel freedom is for demonstrating love, not knowledge. It's for demonstrating love, not knowledge. Right, the Corinthians, they have accurate knowledge about idols. Right, there's only one God. There are no other gods. And so in that sense, idols aren't real. But in practice, people still devote their lives to idols. They still worship idols all the time. And what's happening here is that the Corinthians have become arrogant and insensitive with their knowledge. They're essentially saying, they've taken this posture, this attitude of, look, we know that we're right about this. There's only one God, so what's the big deal if these people have devoted this meat to a pretend deity? What's the big deal? Well, it's a huge deal if in some sense that idol is still real in the heart of another person. And here's a way to think about it. How often do you and I know something to be true in our mind, but really struggle to believe it, struggle to know it in our hearts and in our practices? Isn't that the root of really all of our unbelief? We know a lot here, but do we know it in our heart? 
And for you, when you're in a situation like that, how helpful is it to you when someone takes a rigid, intellectual, apologetics-driven approach to prove that their point of view is right? I'm uh, occasionally part of teams that assess uh, church planters for the church planting network that, that we are a part of. And so I was down in Richmond this past week for like 24 hours of training uh, for assessment like that. One of the other pastors who was down there who does assessments was recounting a time when they actually had to turn a particular applicant down from church planting. And one of the primary reasons was uh, in, these, uh, uh, in these assessments, we give a lot of scenarios, case studies, and we ask a, a, an applicant who's thinking about planting a church, how would you think about and then respond to this situation? And what happened was, in one particular scenario that we often use, uh, it's about how you would respond to a young couple that just found out that they miscarried a child. And what happened, apparently, in this assessment is that this, uh, this person interested in planting a church had all of the right theological answers. He talked about the sovereignty of God and how God uses those things for good and things that are absolutely true. But let me ask you the question, if you're in that position, if you're a couple who has lost a baby, is that a moment where you want someone to prove their knowledge? It's not. Was he right? Yes. It's the wrong moment to demonstrate knowledge. And likewise here in Corinth, if a new Christian someone relatively new to the faith, is struggling to really believe that idols aren't real, then, then you and I don't die on the hill of eating food just because we can, just because it's permissible. Why? Because gospel freedom means you don't have to prove you're right. Gospel freedom means you are free from needing to prove you're right. If, as Paul said at the beginning of this letter, it's not actually through knowledge that people come to know God. It's instead through the wisdom and power of God. You don't have to prove your knowledge and intellectually arm wrestle someone who is struggling to know in their hearts what they may or may not already know to be true in their head. Instead, because of the gospel, we can assume a posture of humble love instead of arrogant knowledge. So that's one thing gospel freedom is for demonstrating love, not knowledge. A second thing gospel freedom is for. Gospel freedom is for valuing deference over preference. Deference over preference. Okay, when we think about freedom, right, for us, individual rights and freedoms are almost always about preference. The way that our world, the way we ourselves think, is that freedom is good because it means I get to do what I want to do. But freedom in God's economy, freedom in the kingdom of God is different. And if you're truly free, it means that you are able to value deference over preference. It means that your freedoms are actually so secure that you don't have to assert them. And what Paul says here is that in eating meat offered to idols, that's a moment for exercising real freedom. Not by asserting, but by deferring to those who are weak. Now this is really important, so let's talk for a moment about this. Who are these weak people? Who are these weak people? At the time that Paul is writing this letter, meat was much more of a delicacy than it is for, for you and I in our society today. Particularly a delicacy for those who were not wealthy, for those who were not rich. So if you're rich and you eat meat regularly, this whole thing is probably not that big a deal. But if you're not, if you're not wealthy, one of the only times you would ever consume meat would be when it was part of an idol festival at an idol's temple. 
big ceremony, big celebration. They'd take some meat, they'd burn it, they'd sacrifice some to the idol, they'd distribute the rest of the people in a big celebration. So put yourself in the shoes of the middle class and the poor people in Corinth. If you'd only ever eaten meat as part of worshiping an idol, worshiping a false god, wouldn't you struggle to dissociate those things? That's the weakness of which Paul speaks. Men and women struggling to separate the meat as a thing in itself from the worship. Right? Their weakness is a weakness of conscience. Though eating meat itself is permissible, eating meat for them would tempt them to return to their former practices. It would perhaps tempt them to see the one true God as just another one of the false gods that they used to worship. As we notice who these weak people are, let's also notice who they are not. They are not entrenched, conservative, restrictive people. They are not those who attempt to create a list of do's and don'ts in order to earn favor from God and then hold others hostage from their freedoms. One of the big misunderstandings, misapplications that can come up through this text is that Christians should always just defer to someone who is offended for any reason at all. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. We have to ask the question, why is that person offended? Is it because they are weak? Or is it because they are imposing a legalistic, moralistic kind of view on others, and thereby changing the message of the gospel? And we don't really deal with meat sacrifice to idols in our day. A more relevant example for this, and perhaps you've even wrestled with this topic, let's talk for a second about alcohol. Let's use that as a, as a relevant example for us. Are Christians free to drink alcohol? Yes. That's the answer to the can I question. Should Christians drink alcohol? Maybe. Maybe. Some of you shouldn't because of your own weakness. And let me commend you for that. If you were, uh, if you are addicted to alcohol, if you're inclined to be addicted to alcohol, if you're inclined to drunkenness, it is wise and good to not drink. Likewise, and this is the part that doesn't get talked about near as much, if because of what your life has looked like, if you associate alcohol with an abusive parent, if you associate alcohol with a party lifestyle, and you struggle in your, in your heart to really dissociate those things, then it would be right and good for you not to drink for the sake of your own conscience. Contrary to the progressive crowd's line, everything is lawful for me, part of gospel freedom means that you are also free to not drink. For others, maybe it's not your own conscience that, that's weak. You're not prone to addiction. Uh, you have no problem dissociating alcohol from other kinds of sinful practices. That's you enjoying the freedom that Jesus has bought for you. Praise God for that. Should you drink alcohol? Maybe. It's, it's going to be situational. Not if it's around weak people whose conscience will be defiled. Um, not if it would encourage a fellow Christian to participate when he or she really should not. Should you drink? Well, in any given situation, I don't know. But I am sure that it requires a lot less assumption and a lot more thought than you and I often give it. So what I would call us to as a church is let's do that hard work of thinking about it. And let's also have the conversations that we need to have with each other about this. If you have a weak conscience, whether it's alcohol or, or other kinds of things that would kind of fit into that category, media you consume, whatever else it might be, 
you have no need to apologize for that. If you're weak in that, and you associate alcohol or whatever it is with these other things, and it's just hard for you to be around it, you have no need to apologize for that. And so what I would ask you to do is risk the vulnerability and open that part of your life up to others. And then for any of us who, who maybe don't experience that weakness in our conscience, see that as a moment, as an opportunity to love another person well. To not assert your freedom to drink, but to instead assert in that moment your real gospel freedom to defer to someone who's weak. Are you really free or aren't you? Because if you are, then you can value deference over preference. Okay, what is, what is gospel freedom for? The point of all of this is that the gospel frees us to prioritize others and not ourselves. Which is why the kingdom of God is so, it turns the world on its head. It's the exact opposite of the way that the, that the world works. Right? Conventional wisdom says we, we are free to do whatever we want as long as it doesn't affect others. But unless we live in pure isolation, everything we do affects others. And I was reminded of that yesterday as our East Coast gets pummeled by Hurricane Matthew. There are people who blatantly ignored the warnings to evacuate their homes who now are calling first responders to risk their lives to come get them. It's like, I've got the freedom to ignore a warning to evacuate. Hey, great, but guess what you're doing when you call that other person to come save you from it? Your freedom is making a big imposition on somebody else's. Our actions always affect other people. If we are freed by Jesus from needing to keep these lists of do's and don'ts, what that means is that we can sincerely, genuinely seek the good of others. We can, as Paul says elsewhere, consider others above ourselves. And I want you to consider it this way. Apart from the gospel, we're actually shackled from our ability to do that. If this life is all about earning salvation, if then, then won't we be fixated on our performance? Won't we be constantly wondering if we're doing enough, if the good is outweighing the bad on the scales that earn our favor with God? And if that's the way that we live, it would mean that all of our quote-unquote service and all of our quote-unquote care for other people is really only a means of ultimately serving and caring about ourselves. We'll do it. I'll take care of these people. I'll, I'll do some of these actions, but only ultimately to earn God's favor. But the gospel says you already have the favor of God through Jesus. So now be free to actually love people instead of asserting your knowledge. Be free to defer to them. Be free to genuinely serve and care for them and not just use them as objects in your own plan of self-salvation. It is the immature, entitled person who says, I have freedom, so back off and let me do what I want. Christians who have been given the privilege of freedom say instead, I have freedom, so let me lay that down to serve you. Third, briefly, what does this gospel freedom look like? Paul doesn't just tell the Corinthians how to use their freedom. He's been embodying the use of this freedom among them all along. And that's what chapter 9 is really about. He points to some of his own freedoms as an apostle, specifically the right to eat and drink anything that God has made, the right to be married, the right to take along a wife with him as he travels around the world trying to share the gospel, the right to be financially compensated for the work of ministry. But then what he says is though he has all of these freedoms, he surrenders them all. Why? Because Paul knows what gospel freedom 
is for. So he demonstrates love instead of his knowledge. He values deference over preference. He prioritizes others above himself. And he says in chapter 9, verse 12, he would rather endure the loss of every single one of his freedoms than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. One of those obstacles in Corinth is that this message about Jesus is likely to get lumped in with other messages of worldly wisdom. And pastors and apostles, those, uh, those people who are coming to share the gospel in Corinth, are likely to get lumped in with other itinerant speakers who travel the globe doing this. There's a celebrity culture in Corinth where good speakers get famous and they get wealthy. So even though Paul has a right to get paid for his work in ministry, he decides to earn his income elsewhere. And what that does is it protects him from the accusation that he's just in this for the money or for the fame. And it therefore protects the gospel itself from being lumped in with celebrity speakers and messages of worldly wisdom. Right, so another way to think about this, the gospel frees us for freedom. Gospel freedom is for freedom. It's for your own freedom. It's also for the freedom of others. And Paul embodies that both in the church by laying down these rights. If we were to continue reading in chapter 9, we'll see he also embodies it with those who are not part of the church. He uses his freedom to become all things to all people so that by any means possible, he might see people come to know and trust in Christ and take all the obstacles that he possibly can out of the way of that. Money and materialism are still very much in our day obstacles. You probably even can hear some of the similarities between first century Corinth and 21st century America. And that's why present day examples of this are still really captivating and captivating cases for the truth and the beauty of Jesus. Just this week, I saw a three-minute video uh, where John Piper, who is a uh, pastor, prominent author, uh, was asked about what happens to all the royalties from his books. Uh, and over the course of his life, he's written more than 50 books, and they've sold millions and millions of copies. That's a lot of royalty money that is coming off of those books. As a Christian, he is free to make an income from that. And as his intellectual property, as his art, as his creative work, it's his right to keep those royalties. But he forgoes that right, and he puts all of that money in a charitable foundation, which is then given away to different ministries and causes around the world. Why does he do that? So that people don't ever mis make the mistake of thinking that he's writing these books to become wealthy. So that others don't ever think that he's trying to just peddle and manipulate people with, with self-help nonsense. And just so that he becomes a famous, a famous guru of some kind. And just as these surrendering these personal freedoms would have been personally costly for Paul, it's personally costly for John Piper. But when you hear someone do that, man, is that compelling? It's compelling. It makes me trust his motives more. It makes me therefore lean in a little bit and want to hear what he has to say. It removes obstacles to the gospel. So that's what gospel freedom does. That's what gospel freedom looks like. We've asked three what questions. What is gospel freedom? What is it for? What does it look like? But let's end by remembering why. Recognizing the freedoms that we have, why should we lay them down? And the answer is, is because that is the gospel by which we are saved. The gospel is 
freedom laid down in order to purchase and secure the freedom of others. Jesus Christ, the one true God, the one Lord, through whom and from whom and to whom are all things, surrendered his rights, surrendered his freedom, and made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Think about this. How much freedom are you foregoing if you are God in the flesh, sacrificing yourself for the freedom of others? We only have freedom because Jesus sacrificed his freedoms. So how amnesic of us to use our freedom in a way that enslaves other people, in a way that destroys the conscience of those for whom Christ died. Right? It would be like looking in a mirror and forgetting who we are. It would be like being given a key to a dungeon, stepping out into our freedom, and then turning around using that exact same key to lock other men and women in behind us. That is what that would be like. So we lay down our freedoms because it is, it is the only way to live in light of the gospel. We lay down our freedoms because only through the laying down of our of freedoms do we even have freedom in the first place. And as Liberty Church, this particular topic is near and dear to my heart. As a church, our name celebrates the fact that we are freed people. That's what liberty spelled oddly means. Freed people. Jesus has set us free. And so may we truly be free. Free from earning our salvation. Free from earning the favor of God free to enjoy God's good gifts, but likewise, free to love and defer and prioritize others above ourselves. May we grasp our freedom in Christ so deeply that we can willingly and joyfully lay down our freedoms for the good of others. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have purchased and secured our freedom by giving up your own. And not only are you our example to follow, but that truly is the only reason we have freedom in the first place. So forgive us when we take that freedom and use it to enslave ourselves or enslave others. Forgive us for that. We are prone to do that. We are prone to forget who we are. We are prone to forget how we have freedom in the first place. And so we need you desperately to give us a clearer view of the work you have done on our behalf, to give us a clearer view of the other people that we interact with on a daily basis and how our lives and actions impact others. And we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to lay down our freedoms, to not assert them all the time, but to recognize when we can love someone by surrendering our freedoms. Would you guide us in that? Because that is something that our flesh, our, our sinful nature will war against constantly. And so as we come to this table this morning, renew us in the grace of your gospel. You have set us free by your body and your blood. And you have freed us to be free for our sake and for the sake of others. So may we come and be strengthened and may we see a 